far in the first decade of the new century. In our Vermont town, in the summer of 2008, we had what may have been the two largest rainstorms in our history about six weeks apart. The second and worst storm, on the morning of August 6th, dropped at least six inches of rain in three hours up on the steep slopes of the mountains. Those forests are mostly intact, with only light logging to disturb them, but that was far too much water for the woods to absorb. One of my neighbors, Amy Sheldon, is a river researcher, and she was walking through the mountains with me one recent day, imagining the floods on that August morning. You would have seen streams changing violently like that, she said, snapping her fingers. A matter of minutes. A year later, the signs persisted. Stream beds gouged down to bedrock, culverts obliterated, groves of trees laid to jackstraws. Our town of barely more than 500 people has been coping with the damage ever since. We passed a $400,000 bond to pay for our share of the damage to town roads and culverts. The total cost was in the millions, most of it paid by the state and federal governments. Now we're paying more to line the creek with a 700-foot-long wall of huge boulders, riprap it's called, where it passes through the center of town, a scheme that may save a few houses for a few years, but which will speed up the water and cause even more erosion downstream. There's a complicated equation for how wide a stream will be, given its grade and geology. Sheldon showed it to me as we reclined on rocks by the riverbank. It mathematically defines streams as we have known them, sets an upper limit to their size. You could use it to plan for the future, so you could know where to build and where to let well enough alone. But none of that planning works if it suddenly rains harder and faster than it has ever rained before, and that's exactly what's now happening. It's raining harder and evaporating faster. Seas are rising and ice is melting, melting far more quickly than we once expected. The first point of this audio program is simple. Global warming is no longer a philosophical threat, no longer a future threat, no longer a threat at all. It's our reality. We've changed the planet, changed it in large and fundamental ways. And these changes are far, far more evident in the toughest parts of the globe, where climate change is already wrecking thousands of lives daily. In July 2009, Oxfam released an epic report, Suffering the Science, which concluded that even if we now adapted the smartest possible curbs on carbon emissions, the prospects are very bleak for hundreds of millions of people, most of them among the world's poorest. And so this audio program will be, by necessity, less philosophical than its predecessor. We need now to understand the world we've created and consider, urgently, how to live in it. We can't simply keep stacking boulders against the change that's coming on every front. 
we'll need to figure out what parts of our lives and our ideologies we must abandon so that we can protect the core of our societies and civilizations. There's nothing airy or speculative about this conversation. It's got to be uncomfortable, staccato, direct. Which doesn't mean that the change we must make, or the world on the other side, will be without its comforts or beauties. Reality always comes with beauty, sometimes more than fantasy. And the end of this audio program will suggest where those beauties lie. But hope has to be real. It can't be a hope that the scientists will turn out to be wrong, or that President Barack Obama can somehow fix everything. Obama can help, but precisely to the degree he's willing to embrace reality, to understand that we live on the...